In this episode, we cover a mobster who is most well known for enjoying a good shoe shine. That's right, we're talking about none other than William Billy Bats Bentvena. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. Motherfucking hey, mutt! You, come you come fucking come piece of shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. Hey, come on. Let him go. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a longtime history buff and mob aficionado. Today, we're going to get into another in-depth mobster biography, but before we begin, I'd like to quickly say thank you so much to everyone that has taken the time to watch my videos on YouTube or listen to the audio-only version. Also, a special thank you goes out to those that have left comments, reviews, and especially those who've become subscribers. For those of you who are first-time viewers, I'd love it if you'd mash that subscribe button to get the latest updates when new videos are published on YouTube. Also, if you're a regular listener to the audio version, you can find my podcast on most podcasting platforms. I've recently moved my hosting to Anchor.fm, which will allow me to do just a little bit of monetization. It's nothing that I'm going to get rich on, but it will help cover the cost of equipment and production, which can get just a little bit pricey. All right, now on to the episode. As with previous episodes, I've done a ton of research on our subject today, William, Billy Bats Benfena, and I think you're going to enjoy this deep dive into one gangster who really didn't become famous until he appeared on the big screen when he was portrayed in the movie Goodfellas by the late, great Frank Vincent. Billy Bats was a soldier within the Gambino crime family from the 1950s through the early 1970s and was one who rubbed elbows with some very famous Cosa Nostra members, including, of course, his good friend, one John Joseph Gotti. Benfena's lasting legacy is, in my opinion, not as a significant individual contributor to the mob, though he was tied up in a pretty significant event, as we'll discuss. His name is really only remembered as a result of the repercussions of his brutal murder, which was famously portrayed in the classic mob film, Goodfellas. Now go home and get your f***ing shine box is one of the most memorable lines in movie history. But before we get to that, there's a lot to cover. So let's dig in. William Benfena, also sometimes known as William Devino, was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 19, 1921. Unfortunately, there just isn't a lot of information available concerning his early life, and a Freedom of Information Act request that I made came up completely and utterly empty. That being said, growing up at that time period and in that area, it's safe to say that he regularly crossed paths and likely even rubbed shoulders with many men of respect in the neighborhood. Throughout the 1930s and 1940s, Brooklyn was primarily under the control of Vincent the Executioner Mangano and the Mangano crime family. After the murder of Mangano in 1951, the family was led by his usurper, Albert the Mad Hatter, Anastasia, who himself was famously gunned down in the barbershop of the Park Sheraton Hotel in 1957 in a coup organized by underboss Carlo Gambino, who then took over as official boss. It was at this time the family was renamed to the Gambino crime family, which it remains today. 
1959, Benfena reportedly became an associate of the Gambino family and was a protege of capo regime Carmine Charlie Wagon's Fatico. Fatico, who had an arrest record dating back to the 1930s, was a powerful capo in the family who would command a large crew of approximately 120 men, that includes made men and associates, uh, that specialized in hijacking loads out of the Idlewild Airport, which was renamed after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963, which we know today, of course, as the JFK Airport. It's during the 1950s where Bent Bainham makes a connection and builds a friendship with another up-and-coming mob associate, John Gotti, who'd been working for the Fatico crew since 1952. Now, it's worth pointing out that there aren't any images of the real Billy Bats, and the image that is most commonly associated with Ben Fena is actually that of Philadelphia mobster Pat the Cat Spirito, who was murdered, uh, of course, by the Scarfo family. So for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to just use Frank Vincent's portrayal as the stand-in for the real uh, Ben Fena, and I'm just going to ask your forgiveness uh, ahead of time. So as we get into the late 1950s, Ben Fena would become involved in a large-scale drug operation run by several of the families that would come to be known by law enforcement as the Ormento Group, named after the leader of the group and Lucchese crime family captain Giovanni Big John Ormento. Other members of the Ormento group who are considered managing directors are some names you might recognize. First, there's Carmine the Cigar Galante, who would go on to become the somewhat infamous self-proclaimed boss of the Bonanno crime family. He would ultimately be murdered uh, at the uh, Joe and Mary's Italian restaurant with his cigar hanging out of his mouth in 1979. Next, you have one Anthony Mira also from the Bonanno crime family, who would later introduce FBI agent Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, into the family, which would ultimately lead to the Bonanos being kicked off of the commission, uh, and it would lead to Mira himself being murdered as well. The Ormento group would smuggle large quantities of heroin into the United States from Canada. The CEO of the group, Big John Ormento, ran the 107th Street mob out of Harlem and was one of the most significant narcotics kingpins in the entire country at the time. And also, just so you know, he was also a part of the French Connection. Unfortunately for William Benfena, he was arrested by undercover police and charged with possession and exchange of narcotics on February 14, 1959 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He had traveled to Bridgeport to complete a drug deal with New Jersey mobster Joseph Joe the Crow Del Vecchio and Gambino mobster Oreste Ernie Boy Abamonte. Benfena would also be caught in New York moving narcotics by another undercover FBN agent in January of 1959. Uh, so, so far his track record is not very good. Uh, the ultimate downfall would come as part of the larger indictment of the Ormento group uh, that would be handed down in May of 1960. The indictment would charge Benfena and 28 others with charges of violating various narcotics laws as well as conspiracy to do so. The trial was marked by violence and vocal outbursts among some of the defendants, and there were actually three defendants who were shackled and gagged during the latter part of the trial. And so in June of 1962, Ben Fena was convicted of heroin smuggling and sentenced to 15 years to be served at the Federal Correctional Institution in Danbury, Connecticut. It's worth noting that this is also the famous pinch that took down his co-defendant, Carmine Galante. Of course, we know Galante's absence set the stage for him to avoid the Bonanno family turmoil of the 1960s and ultimately uh, rise to power upon his release in the 1970s, throwing the family into utter chaos yet again. If you read the indictment, it's somewhat evident that Benfena may have gotten a bit of a raw deal and was likely a smaller part, uh, more so than a bigger cog in the Ormento group. Uh, reading uh, from his appeal documentation, it says, There was abundant evidence that all appellants, except Benfena, Monasterski, and Struzeri, were part of a conspiracy to import and deliver narcotic drugs. The evidence of knowing participation in the conspiracy by Galante, Mancino, DiPietro, and Mira is overwhelming. 
The testimony of Smith not only placed Galante in the midst of the group importing the drugs, but also shows him with physical possession of narcotics and direct knowledge and supervision of the importation. In addition to his 1958 bust, here was the alleged evidence used to tie Benbena into the Ormento group as a minor contributor from his 1963 appeal. An indictment returned by a legally constituted and unbiased grand jury, like an information drawn by the prosecutor if valid on its face, is enough to call for trial of the charge on the merits. The facts developed with respect to the purchase and delivery of heroin, which involved Benfena, Struzeri, and Monasterski, constitute the proof which formed the basis of the prosecution's case against them as charged in counts four and five. On January 5, 1959, Agent Giorgio of the Bureau of Narcotics met Appellant Monasterski on East 116th Street in Manhattan and on the following day ordered one half kilogram of heroin from him for $6,000. Monasterski arranged for delivery that evening. During that evening, other agents of the Bureau of Narcotics followed Monasterski and saw him enter 525 East 88th Street. Several minutes later, a car driven by the defendant, Marcantino Orlandino, entered the block. Struzzeri alighted from it and entered the same building carrying a package covered in blue and white Christmas wrapping paper. After some time, he emerged empty-handed and drove off with Orlandino. Shortly thereafter, Monasterski came out and drove out of the area. Later, the agents observed the co-conspirator, McGovern, come out of the building carrying a package of similar size and wrapping and followed him to 448 East 87th Street. Later that evening, Agent Giorgio met Monasterski and was told by him that his partner had the stuff. Monasterski took him to an apartment on 448 East 87th Street and introduced him to McGovern, who threw a package wrapped in blue and white Christmas wrapping paper on the table. Giorgio tested the contents and told Monasterski that it was junk. The three men left the apartment and went downstairs where Giorgio handed McGovern $6,000 and McGovern gave the agent the narcotics. Another agent saw McGovern and Monasterski return to 525 East 88th Street where they were met by Struzzeri and Orlandino. Struzzeri and Orlandino left and were later overheard discussing agent Giorgio's unwillingness to part with the money in advance of receiving the narcotics. On January 13, 1959, Giorgio ordered more narcotics, agreeing to meet Monasterski that evening. They met and proceeded to 525 East 88th Street, where they were told to return in an hour, Monasterski explaining to the agent that the junk wasn't there yet. Approximately 50 minutes later, Benfena and Struzzeri entered the building. Giorgio returned, accompanied by agent Mangio Racina, who was introduced to Monasterski by Giorgio as his partner. While Mangio Racina waited in the lobby at 525 East 88th Street, Monasterski and Giorgio went to a second-floor apartment, passing Struzzeri and Bentvena on the way in. Giorgio, on being told by McGovern that these two were the delivery boys, asked McGovern to tell them not to become apprehensive of Mangio Racina, who was in the lobby as he was Giorgio's partner. McGovern went to the house phone, spoke into it, and returned, saying the junk would be there in a few minutes. Struzzeri and Benfena walked to a car parked on 88th Street, opened the trunk, and removed a package which Benfena tucked under his arm. Both men returned to McGovern's apartment, walking past Mangia Racina, who was still in the lobby and delivered the package to McGovern. The sale to Giorgio was then consummated. Benfena's attorneys tried hard to get his conviction overturned, but to no avail. Again, uh, from his appeal. Investigation of a narcotics ring usually has its origin in a sale or series of sales made to narcotics or undercover agents. The salesmen, however, are as a rule on the outer fringe, the lowest echelon in the hierarchy of narcotics rings. Note in passing the delivery boy status ascribed to Benfena and Struzzeri, who for $25 apiece were in actual possession of a commodity retailing at $6,000 a half kilo. Quite frequently, the ringleaders or overlords of the narcotics business do not stultify themselves by possession when handlers can be so cheaply hired. Struzzeri, Monasterski, and Benfena contend, and the majority agree that evidence, 
particularly hearsay evidence, was admitted under the conspiracy count and that the court failed to adequately instruct the jury that such evidence could not be used to convict under the substantive counts. The facts of the case dictate that he likely should have drawn a relatively light sentence or even some sort of probation. However, Ben Fena ended up drawing an incredibly harsh sentence of 15 years while only making $25 for the crime he was allegedly convicted for, which is simply, it's just insane, uh, due to being lumped in with this larger conspiracy. Other mob notables in the Ormento group would draw the following sentences. Giovanni Big John Ormento, 40 years and a $20,000 fine. Carmine Galante, 20 years and a $20,000 fine. Anthony Mira, 20 years. Now it's said that around 1961, Benfino was officially initiated into the Gambino family, becoming a made man. However, if you consider that Carlo Gambino had allegedly closed the books, then the only way that this is true would be if he were made earlier than that date, or if he was made to replace a deceased member within the ranks. It's really hard to know which is true, but most sources tend to accept that Billy Batts did indeed get his button at some point. So he goes into the can as a man of respect, so to speak. After his appeals were exhausted, William Billy Batts Benfena proved to be a stand-up guy and would go away in 1962 to do his time like a man. He didn't compromise. <laughs> it's a Sopranos reference. Or no, he did compromise. He compromised. Uh, he ate cheese off of a radiator. <laughs> and he jacked off into a tissue. Ugh. Uh, Anyways, he was a man who did his time without so much as a peep, which was supposed to garner a certain level of respect, and he expected to get what was coming to him when he got out. In fact, he believed certain things were rightfully his as a made man, and based on the rules of Cosa Nostra, he was correct in believing that. Unfortunately, Bentvena's return from prison would prove less inspiring than he anticipated, though he would eventually be immortalized on the big screen for a much more gruesome reason. William Billy Bats Benfena would end up doing eight out of the 15 years on his sentence, and he would be released in 1970. If you've watched Goodfellas, then you know what happens next, but hopefully you'll learn something new here uh, as part of this podcast. For the rest of you, I plan to tell the story of Billy Bats's murder along with some select clips uh, overlaid from the movie Goodfellas. Fresh out of the can and back in his old stomping ground, Bats was keen to get back into his old drug and loan shark racket so that he could start earning again. The problem was his old rackets had been moved in on by other local wise guys, most specifically one James, Jimmy the Gent Burke. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because Jimmy Burke was one of the most notorious gangsters of all time and was famously portrayed by Robert De Niro in the movie Goodfellas. Although Burke wasn't ever officially made into Cosa Nostra due to his Irish-American heritage, he was certainly afforded a great deal of respect within the Italian Mafia due to his abilities both as a big earner as well as a feared hitman. He was primarily known for working with the Paul Vario crew of the Lucchese crime family, but he also did work for the Colombo crime family early on in his mob career. To put Burke into proper historical context, he would go on to be the man behind the Lufthansa Airport heist in 1978, which was the biggest heist in American history at the time, and netted the crew $5 million in cash and $875,000 in jewelry, which was an astronomical amount of money, especially for the time. Uh, Jimmy Burke was also famous for his violent, ruthless streak that resulted in nearly all of his accomplices in the Lufthansa robbery dying of unnatural causes. As if the murder of about eight to ten accomplices isn't enough, there's also the story of him chainsawing his wife's ex-boyfriend to death on his wedding day. Good God! So I think it's fair to say that this guy would kill you in a second if you dared to cross him, and his reputation within the mob was bolstered due to that fact. Whether or not Benfina was aware of the extent of Burke's ruthlessness, we'll likely never know. 
That being said, William Billy Batts Benvena chose to attend a welcome home party held at Robert's Lounge, which was a nightclub that Burke owned in Ozone Park, Queens. This event was famously played out in Goodfellas by the great Frank Vincent, who of course played Billy Batts. Uh, Ray Liotta, may he rest in peace, uh, is uh, portraying, of course, famous mob rat Henry Hill, and the aforementioned Robert De Niro portrayed Jimmy Conway, a.k.a. Jimmy Burke, uh, and last but certainly not least, who can forget Joe Pesci as Tommy Two-Gun DeVito, a.k.a. Tommy DeSimone. The event we're about to talk about didn't actually happen in a single evening as was portrayed in the movie. It happened over the course of several weeks. Before we proceed, we should also give you a quick intro into Tommy DeSimone. Now, if you thought Jimmy Burke was a psychopath, DeSimone probably had him beat in that department. Additionally, despite the fact that Tommy, unlike Joe Pesci, was actually a fairly large guy in real life, he's been described as well over six foot and over 200 pounds of muscle, he had a major Napoleon complex due to the fact that his brother Anthony had been a rat, a fact Tommy would be very sensitive to. Uh, Hill would later describe DeSimone as a pure psychopath. According to Hill, DeSimone committed his first murder on March 15, 1968. Hill and DeSimone were walking down the street when DeSimone spotted a civilian named Howard Goldstein, who was unknown to either gangster. Hill recalls DeSimone turning to him and saying, Hey Henry, watch this. Suddenly, DeSimone yelled, Hey cocksucker! Pulled out a 38 caliber pistol and shot and killed Goldstein. Hill exclaimed, That was cold-blooded, Tommy. DeSimone replied, Well, I'm a mean cat. So these are the key players in this particular situation. As I mentioned, uh, in late May of 1970, William Billy Batspenvena attended a welcome home party held at Robert's Lounge in Ozone Park, Queens. As is seen in the movie, though it didn't exactly happen the same way and there likely wasn't any go-get-your-fucking-shine-box moment, it is clear that at some point during the course of the evening, Bentvina allegedly asked Tommy DeSimone if he still shined shoes, which Tommy indeed had done as an up-and-coming youth. According to the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, Henry Hill describes the circumstances of the murder. One night right after my arrest for assaulting the wrong guy, we were having a party for Roberts for Billy Bats. Billy had just gotten out of prison after six years. We usually gave a guy a party when he got out. Food, booze, hookers, it's a good time. Billy was a made guy. He was with Johnny Gotti from near Fulton Street, and he was hooked up with the Gambinos. We're all bombed. Jimmy, Tommy, me... Billy turned around and he saw Tommy, who he knew from before he went away. Tommy was only about 20 at the time, so the last time Billy saw him, Tommy was just a kid. Billy started to kid around. He asked Tommy if he still shined shoes. It was just a snide remark, but you couldn't kid around with Tommy. He was wired very tight. One of Tommy's brothers had ratted people out years ago, and he was always living that down. He always had to show he was tougher than anyone around. He always had to be special. He was the only guy in the crew that used to drink Crown Royal. It was a Canadian whiskey that wasn't imported back when he was a kid. Tommy had it smuggled in. He was the kind of guy who was being so tough, he managed to find a bootleg hooch to drink 30 years after Prohibition. I looked over at Tommy and I could see he was fuming at the way Billy was talking. Tommy was going nuts, but he couldn't do or say anything. Billy was a made man. If Tommy so much as took a slap at Billy, Tommy was dead. Still, I knew he was pissed. We kept drinking and laughing, and just when I thought it was all forgotten, Tommy leaned over to Jimmy and me and said, I'm going to kill that fuck. I joked back with him, but I saw he was serious. So note to self, when you're speaking to a homicidal maniac with a hair-trigger temper, asking them a question, joking or not, that they perceive as an insult, especially in public, is probably not smart. But Bats, as a made guy, probably felt pretty secure in his power since Tommy and, for that matter, Jimmy or Henry uh, were not made. And by the Mafia's rules, he should have been untouchable. But as we would find out, the rules in some cases are more like guidelines to be applied when they suit certain ends. So as far as the, the end of the evening at Robert's Lounge, that was it. But that wasn't everything, right? It, it wasn't over. According to Pileggi's book Wise Guy, two weeks later on June 11, 1970, Benfena was allegedly hanging out at Henry Hill's nightclub, The Suite, located in Jamaica, Queens. This scene was pretty similar to what was portrayed in Goodfellas. 
uh, and we get some more commentary from the book uh, coming from the perspective of Henry Hill. A couple of weeks later, Billy was drinking in the suite. It was late. I was praying that he'd go home when Tommy walked in. It didn't take long. Tommy immediately sent his girlfriend home and he gave me and Jimmy a look. Right away, Jimmy started getting real cozy with Billy Bats. He started buying Billy drinks. I could see he was setting Billy up for Tommy. Keep him here. I'm going for a bag, Tommy whispered to me. And I knew he was going to kill Billy right in my own joint. He was going for a body bag, a plastic mattress cover, so Billy wouldn't bleed all over the place when he killed him. Tommy was back with the bag and a 38 in 20 minutes. I was getting sick. By now, Jimmy has Billy Bats in the corner of the bar near the wall. They were drinking and Jimmy was telling him stories. Billy was having a great time. As it got late, almost everybody went home. Only Alex Corsioni, who was seated in the back with his girl, was left in the place. The bartender left. Jimmy had his arm hanging real loose around Billy's shoulder when Tommy came over. Billy didn't even look up. Why should he? He was with friends, fellow wise guys. He had no idea that Tommy was going to kill him. I was on the side of the bar when Tommy took the 38 out of his pocket. Billy saw it in Tommy's hand. The second Billy saw what was happening, Jimmy tightened his arm around Billy's neck. Shine these fucking shoes, Tommy yells, and smashes the gun right into the side of Billy's head. Billy's eyes opened wide. Tommy smashed him again. Jimmy kept his grip. The blood began to come out of Billy's head. It looked black. By now, Alex Corsioni saw what was going on and he started to come over. Jimmy glared at him. You want some? Jimmy said. Jimmy was ready to drop Billy and go after Alex. I got between them as though I was going to belt Alex, but I just grabbed Alex by his shoulders and steered him toward the door. Get out of here, I said real quiet so Jimmy can't hear. They've got a beef. I maneuvered Alex and his girl out the door and they were gone. Alex was with our crew, but Jimmy and Tommy were so hot right then, they would have whacked Alex and his girl right there if he gave him trouble. I locked the front door and when I turned back, I saw Billy's body was spread out on the floor. His head was a bloody mess. Tommy had opened the mattress cover. Jimmy told me to bring around the car. And the book continues on uh, to further describe the situation. We had a problem. Billy Bats was untouchable. There has to be an okay before a made man can be killed. If the Gambino people ever found out that Tommy killed Billy, we were all dead. There was no place we could go. They could even have demanded that Polly whack us himself. Tommy had done the worst possible thing he could have done, and we all knew it. Billy's body had to disappear. We couldn't leave it on the street. There would have been a war. With no body around, the Gotti crew would never know for sure. Jimmy said we had to bury the body where it couldn't be found. He had a friend upstate with a dog kennel where nobody would ever look. We put Billy in the trunk of the car and we drove to Tommy's house to pick up a shovel. His mother was already up and made us come in for coffee. She wouldn't leave us alone. We have to have breakfast with a body parked outside. Finally, we left Tommy's and got on the Taconic. We'd been driving about an hour when I heard a funny noise. I'm in the back half asleep with the shovel. Tommy was driving. Jimmy was asleep. I heard the noise again. It was like a thump. Jimmy woke up. The banging began again. It dawned on us all at once. Billy Bats was alive. He was banging on the trunk. We were on our way to bury him and he wasn't even dead. Now Tommy really got mad. He slammed on the brakes. He leaned over the seat and grabbed the shovel. Nobody said a word. We got out of the car and waited until there were no more headlights coming up behind us. Then Jimmy got on one side and I got on the other and Tommy opened the trunk. The second it sprang open, Tommy smashed the sack with a shovel. Jimmy grabbed a tire iron and he started banging away at the sack. It only took a few seconds and we got back in the car. When we got to the spot where we were going to bury Billy, the ground was so frozen we had to dig for an hour to get him down deep enough. Then we covered him with lime and drove back to New York. So, true to the movie, the trio actually did stop off at DeSimone's mother's house to pick up a knife, lime, and a shovel. And no, I can't confirm that they had dinner with Tommy's mother while discussing the artistic properties of a gray-haired man sitting in a boat asking, What do you want from me? <laughs> oh my god. 
Also, while Bambino was shot and stabbed in a gruesome murder in the movie, the reality of DeSimone and Burke actually finishing Bats off by beating him with the shovel and tire iron actually even seems more gruesome, if you ask me. William Billy Bats Bambino was just 49 at the time of his murder. Hill would go on to say that Bats was like a curse due to the fact that three months after the murder, Burke's friend sold the dog kennel and the property was earmarked for housing development, which put the body at risk of being discovered. As a result, Jimmy Burke ordered both Hill and DeSimone to exhume the corpse and dispose of it elsewhere. According to Wise Guy, about three months after we planted the guy, Jimmy came to me at the suite and said Tommy and I would have to dig up the body and bury it somewhere else. The guy who owned the kennel had just sold the property to a housing developer. He had been bragging to Jimmy about how much money he was going to make, but all Jimmy knew was that the workmen might find the body. That night, Tommy and I took my brand new Pontiac Cataline convertible and we dug Billy up. It was awful. We had put lime on the body to help it decompose, but it was only half gone. The smell was so bad, I got sick. I started to throw up. All the time Tommy and I worked, I was throwing up. We put the body in the trunk and took it to a junkyard we used in Jersey. Enough time had passed, so nobody was going to think it was Billy. I stayed sick for a week. I couldn't get away from the smell. Everything smelled like the body, the restaurant grease, the kids' candy. I couldn't stop smelling it. I threw away the clothes, even the shoes I wore that night, thinking they were the problem. I couldn't get the smell of it out of the trunk of my car. I ripped out all the upholstery and threw it away. I gave the car a real scrubbing. I tossed a bottle of Karen's perfume inside and closed the lid. But I couldn't get rid of the smell. It never went away. I finally had to junk the car. Jimmy and Tommy thought I was nuts. Tommy said if he could have smelled it, he would have kept the car just to remind himself about how he took care of that miserable bastard, Billy Bats. Now, according to later interviews, Hill would claim that the body was initially moved to the basement of Robert's Lounge. However, as Hill stated in Wise Guy, the half-decomposed corpse would eventually be moved again and ultimately crushed in a mechanical compactor in a junkyard in New Jersey. And of course, due to Ben Bena's status as a highly respected maid soldier in the Gambino family, the most powerful family in the United States, and his friendship with the likes of John Gotti, Carmine Fatico, and others truly would prove to be a major issue for the trio. The murder was unsanctioned, and this fact, along with several other issues, would lead to the ultimate downfall of Tommy DeSimone, Jimmy Burke, and Henry Hill. In the immediate time period after this hit, nothing happens to DeSimone Burke or Henry Hill. However, people like John Gotti certainly had their suspicions and were very unhappy that a good friend and made guy had gotten clipped under such mysterious circumstances. One of the questions I often ask myself is why didn't the Gambino family take retribution right away? I think the obvious answer has two parts. First, they didn't have concrete proof that DeSimone Burke and Hill had done the work. If they had, I'm sure it would have been an immediate death sentence since Bats was supposedly highly respected, stand up, and the hit was not sanctioned by the commission. Second, since Burke and DeSimone had moved in on Bentvena's rackets and according to some sources made them far more profitable, Paul Vario and the Lucchese crime family probably looked the other way in order to keep the money flowing in. While many people pin this hit on DeSimone's hot temper, it's more likely that it was ultimately engineered by Burke as he most likely didn't want to give Bentvena back his rackets. What I find odd about this is the timing. In 1970, Carlo Gambino was firmly in power and would not have stood for such an affront to his family without striking back, though he may have had his hands busy with the stuff with Joe Colombo, uh, that was pulling, uh, of course, with the Italian-American Civil Rights League literally right at the same time. So he may have had a lot going on. Uh, additionally, the Gambino family and the Lucchese family were strategically allied and had a strong relationship. And even though Tommy Lucchese had died three years earlier, the two families were still relatively tight in the 1970s. But maybe in the end, they just decided to allow things to simmer. And simmer they did. <laughs>
So for nine years to pass without anything happening to DeSimone, Burke, or Hill is very suspicious and could potentially even be considered tacit support on behalf of both the Lucchese's and the Gambinos to allow Burke to continue increasing the profits from Benfena's old rackets despite the clear infraction. As they said in Goodfellas, it was real greaseball shit between the Italians, just not in the way you might have thought. Tommy DeSimone's luck, though, would eventually run out as he would be reported missing by his wife on January 14, 1979. She had last seen him a few weeks before reporting him missing, thus making his actual death date somewhat uncertain. His body has never been located. There are several rumors floating around about the circumstances of this hit, and most of the inside sources are government informants, so it's difficult to know what exactly is true or not. When Henry Hill became a government uh, informant in 1980, he told authorities that DeSimone had been murdered by the Gambino crime family. He claimed that around December 1978 or January 1979, while Burke and Hill were in Florida to straighten out a drug deal, DeSimone stayed behind in New York under the guise that he was to be straightened out as a member of the Lucchese family. However, when it came time for the ceremony, Lucchese family members Peter Vario, who was Paul Vario's son, and Bruno Facciola shepherded DeSimone to an unknown location where he was ultimately murdered and then disappeared. Why did Vario finally greenlight the murder nine years after the Benfena hit? There's a story that has circulated that DeSimone had allegedly raped Henry Hill's wife, who, in a bizarre plot twist, was actually having an affair with Vario while Hill was in prison. And this story, of course, uh, was circulated by Henry Hill himself. And supposedly, this was the last straw. Honestly, I, I don't believe this to be true. I find it uh, very unlikely, but can I rule it out? I wasn't there, so, so no. So maybe it is true. Who knows? Uh, the more likely story, though, is that DeSimone had become a liability and thus became expendable. The fact that he was positively identified as one of the Lufthansa robbers when he lifted his mask during the heist, as well as the fact that he'd committed several unsanctioned murders, were likely the figurative and literal nails in the coffin. The two prominent theories of the events surrounding DeSimone's actual murder uh, center around two prominent Gambino mobsters, of course, John Gotti and Tommy Agro. According to Henry Hill, who reaffirmed this information on multiple occasions, John Gotti himself pulled the trigger on DeSimone while in the presence of Agro, and the death took a long time as Bentvena was a personal friend of Gotti's. Additionally, it should be noted that DeSimone is also credited with killing another friend, Ronald Foxy Giroth, as Giroth punched DeSimone in the face in a feud over Giroth's sister, who DeSimone was dating. In the book The Lufthansa Heist by Hill and author Daniel Simone, Henry Hill relayed specifics which he heard from Sal Polisi around DeSimone's murder. Again, so take what I'm about to say for what you will. I think it adds some interesting color and context to the story. It may not be exactly true. According to the book, upon hearing DeSimone was about to be made, Gotti demanded a sit-down with Vario in which the following conversation took place. Gotti. This fucking DeSimone whacked two of my top earners, and I let it go for a long time. Now he wants to be made, and I'm not going to sit quietly. I mean, that's as bad as putting a cactus up my ass. Understand what I'm saying, Polly? Vario. John, what do you suppose I should do? Gotti. Polly. All I want is what's fair. I want to whack the bastard, and I want you to give me the green light. And based on everything I just laid out, and with DeSimone as a constant source of agita for Vario, the request was considered timely and well-received and thus greenlit. According to Wise Guy, Henry Hill describes the conversation he had with Burke after uh, they found out about the murder of Tommy DeSimone. We had heard that Bruno Fasciola and Petey Vario were going to vouch for him. They were supposed to pick him up and drive him to where they were having the little ceremony, but when Jimmy called and asked if he had seen his godmother yet, Tommy's mother said it was snowing so much that it had been called off. The next day, Jimmy called again. I saw him in the booth. He listened, and then I saw him raise his hand and jam the phone down on the hook with all his strength. The whole phone booth shook. I never saw him like that. I never saw such anger. I was scared. He came out of the booth, and I saw he had tears in his eyes. I don't know what's going on, and he says that they just whacked Tommy. Jimmy's crying. He said they whacked Tommy. The Gotti crew, they whacked 
Tommy. It was over Tommy having killed Billy Bats and a guy named Foxy. They were made guys with the Gambinos, and Tommy had killed them without an okay. Nobody knew Tommy had done it, but the Gambino people had somehow gotten the proof. They had to sit down with Polly, and they got Polly's okay to kill Tommy. Speaking of Burke, because of his status as a major earner, it was clear that he still had Barrio's protection and that any hit on him was not going to be greenlit and may not have even been requested, for that matter. Again, according to the book The Lufthansa Heist, here are the supposed specific details of the hit, and I caution you to please take them for what you will since it's based on the word of several informants who we know can distort the truth and sometimes even downright lie. The night De Simone expected to be inducted into the mob, Vario's son drove him from his home in Ozone Park, Queens, to Belmont in the Bronx. De Simone wore a double-breasted black Bill Blast suit, a starched blue shirt, and a beige silk tie, the book says. De Simone was led to the basement of Don Vito's restaurant. Several old men were seated around a card table, and candles gave the room a dim light. De Simone was surprised to see Gotti, a Gambino. He thought his induction would be a Lucchese affair. Welcome, Tommy. Congratulations, Gotti said. Pull up a chair to the table and sit comfortably. This is not an ordinary day in your life, I want you to know. De Simone sat down. Within three seconds, Gotti pulled out a silencer-equipped 38 Colt Magnum from his inner breast pocket and drilled three bullets into De Simone's cranium. Pop, pop, pop. De Simone's head blasted forward, and with the thud of a 10-pound boulder slumped onto the card table, blood seeping and leeching onto the green felt tabletop. Gotti buttoned his camel cashmere overcoat, straightened the lapels, and walked out of the room with a vaunting stride, the book said. And that's that, and there's absolutely nothing we could do about it. <laughs> uh, now, the other popular story, which comes from Gambino Associates turned rats Joseph Joe Dogs Iannuzzi in Sao Polisi, again, was that De Simone was killed and tortured by Tommy Agro. Now, maybe Hill uh, was getting his recollection of Polisi's story wrong, or maybe they were both wrong. Who knows? Uh, anyhow, according to Joe Dogs, Agro, uh, who himself was a legendarily vicious mobster, would often joke about killing the third De Simone brother. He'd supposedly killed Tommy's two brothers, stating, maybe it's time to go for the De Simone trifecta. That's pretty fucking morbid. Uh, now, I don't know that either of these stories is true, but the fact remains that De Simone was no longer and the Gambino family had finally gotten their long-awaited revenge. As for Jimmy Burke and Henry Hill, they never received retribution for their roles in the Bent Bainham murder. However, as I mentioned, Hill would turn government witness in 1980 and sell out his old friends. Hill's testimony in federal court resulted in a total of 50 convictions, including those of Burke and their boss, Capo, Paul Vario. Burke would receive a sentence of 12 years in prison and would get 20 years added onto his sentence after being charged in another murder case. He would die in prison on April 12, 1996. Paul Vario would get a four-year sentence in 1984 and an additional 10 years in another case added on. He would also die in prison at the age of 73 on May 3, 1988. Henry Hill would live out the rest of his life in and out of witness protection before ultimately passing away in June of 2012, a full 42 years after the Billy Bats incident that he was so famously tied to due to his portrayal in Goodfellas. Okay, so did the episode, did a lot of research on our subject, Billy Bats, uh, and then as I'm editing the episode, um, came upon some new information that I pretty much felt like could not be omitted because some of the information that I originally had, I think might actually be inaccurate. So I'm adding this addendum uh, to the episode just to kind of correct the record based on some late information that I found in my research about one Mr. Billy Bats, William Benfena. Um, so a little behind the scenes information uh, for all of my episodes. When I start with the subject, and I'm sure I'll face a little bit of ridicule for this, um, but I do start at Wikipedia just to lay a base uh, when I'm when I'm centering in on somebody just to lay a base. And then I supplement that 
um, you know, with with, you know, Freedom of Information Acts, FBI documents, books, uh, as well as genealogy websites, uh, of all things uh, that really help newspaper articles, anything that I can use to corroborate uh, some of the facts uh, with the particular particular subject have, have been successful for me. So one of the things you see in the Wikipedia entry for William Billy Batts Benvena is that he was born on January 19th, 1921. Now, uh, the late information that I got uh, coming through a site called myheritage.com when I was looking uh, looking for records of Mr. Bentvena, I came upon a birth record that suggests, uh, and this is this is something different, uh, a birth record that suggests that his birthday was not in January of 1921, but instead February of 1933. This does seem to be William Bentvena. We do know that he died in 1970, uh, although there also is a discrepancy here. This says December. Uh, and, um, you know, all the information available publicly uh, tends to to say, I believe, uh, June. So there is a discrepancy there that I wanted to call out. Uh, the other thing uh, that I wanted to call out, uh, aside from aside from that, is William Bentvena got married uh, in 1958 to a person named Patricia McGovern. And I was able to make actually another... Uh, another connection there, and and you can see uh, the record here. Where's he at? Right there, William Bentvena, Patricia McGovern. That is an official official record. Uh, September of 1958, uh, they got married in New Jersey. So looking at uh, just a, a few a few other things again, there are multiple entries from uh, for Mr. Mr. Bentvena, uh, and I just want to go back to which one is it? Apologies, people. <laughs> just want to go back. Uh, so you get a little bit more information. Uh, so his parents were Joseph. Bentvena and Alice Bentvena, uh, who whose uh, maiden name was Fulham. So. Uh, I'm not sure Fulham doesn't sound like uh, an, an Italian name. So this may mean that maybe by the time that they were making people in the 1960s, that only your father had to be Italian. He had uh, siblings. Uh, he had another uh, uh, sibling named Russell uh, and uh, a few others that come up in some of these some of these other records. Somebody named uh, something Hinkston. Uh, so that that is definitely definitely interesting yeah so different there there are different records and what i was kind of getting at uh and the reason that i think that this birth record is interesting is because uh, popular I, I think popular culture believes that ben vena was a little bit older uh when he was murdered i believe that that i reported uh he was 49 years of age born in 1921 um and the interesting thing, and, and the reason that I think that this 1933 birth date is actually true is in a lot of the stories that you're getting about the Ormento case in the New York Times, you see Ben Vena, uh, his, his record, uh, and where is, where is he in here? Right here. You see Ben Vena reported as much, much younger. So 26, in this case, this is uh, an article from 1962 saying he was 26 years old, which lines up a lot more closely with that 1933 birth date. And there are several other articles that that suggest that his age was much younger. Had he been truly born in 1921, uh, he would be uh, uh, quite a, quite a bit older. Uh, and then also to go back to the the interesting marriage record. So his wife's name was Patricia McGovern. If you look at his indictment from the Ormento group, there was a person uh, who was also indicted named McGovern. So my guess is that maybe this was uh, Patricia's brother, some relation uh, to the woman that he ultimately married. So uh, just a correction here. I'm going to add it to the back half of the episode as kind of an addendum, uh, additional information that I felt was important. Um, 
yeah, just wanted to bring that to everybody's attention. It looks like Wikipedia is wrong. Uh, and it looks like his birth date was actually February of, of 1933, which actually makes him uh, quite a bit younger when he got murdered. And not only that, quite a bit younger when he got made. So thought that was interesting. In the end, was William Billy Batspent Vena a significant mobster? No. Would anyone know his name had his story not been told in the book Wise Guy and then played beautifully by Frank Vincent in Goodfellas? Likely not. Uh, it is worth pointing out that Bent Vena allegedly got his button some 15 years before the likes of John Gotti, but it's really hard to say what he'd have become had he been alive into the 1980s. He'd have been in his mid-60s by that point, and I'd venture as a guest that he might have made it to cap a regime within the family, but by the time Gotti killed Paul Castellano in 1985, all bets would have been off. So who really knows where he'd have ended uh, in that mess of a time period, uh, and who, who knows where he would have aligned himself? Probably with Gotti, but then again, you just never know. Uh, anyhow, uh, as I enjoy deep diving into mobsters that there really isn't too much information on, I thought it'd be cool to see if I could shed some light, or at least some more light, on who William Bentvena really was. And I really hope that you learned something new about the mobster who would have been forgotten in the annals of history without the magic of Hollywood. By the way, uh, if any of you insiders know how Bentvena got his famous nickname, please drop it in the comments below. I wasn't able to find any information on that specifically, and it kind of drove me crazy. Uh, I'm imagining that maybe it is something to do with, with baseball or a bat. Maybe he pulled a Joe Batters like Tony Accardo uh, when it came to collecting for his loans. I really don't know, but I would appreciate it if, if anybody that's in the know uh, or the maybe new people connected could drop it in the comments. I'm sure you're out there. As always, I appreciate everyone's patience as I know it takes me a long time to do research, record, and produce the episodes, but I hope you found it worth the wait. Uh, I spend probably 50 or 60 hours doing the painstaking work, work on each episode I put out, so just know uh, that while I'd like to move faster, life sometimes gets in the way, and I want to ensure that I'm doing my homework to give you the detail that you can't find easily anywhere else. As always, I really appreciate the support, and if you're on YouTube, please let me know what you thought about the episode in the comments below. Also, please mash that subscription button on YouTube and hit the notification bell so you know when I've posted a new episode. If you're listening to the audio version of the episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd rate the show in order to help it grow. Although I'm not super active on other platforms, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, Please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.